Let's pray together. Our Lord, we come to you in great need again of your word to be able to speak to our hearts. Help us to realize that in this moment there are many things that can vie for our attention. We can be distracted in our thoughts. We can become overwhelmed with our anxieties. We can be overcome with our sin. Uh, we can think of what we're going to do later today. And so in all the things, all the places that our minds can go, we pray, O oh God, that you would, by your grace, keep us centered on your word this day. Help us to hear it. Uh, let it settle in our hearts. May the enemy not rip it away and so uh, lead us in a path of destruction. We pray, O oh God, that your, life, your word might have life for us. Speak through me. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Regardless of whether this morning you sit here as a Christian or not, uh, do you ever wonder how relevant religion, or even in particular Christianity, is to life? As the modern world advances in science and technology, as views of things like sexuality and morality evolve, as we move further and further away in time uh, from the times when the Bible were even written, I think it can be harder for us to see the relevance of something like religion. I read one article this week, for example, from The Guardian that said this, to say that you are a Christian today is to declare yourself intolerant, naive, superstitious, and backward, right? superstitious, naive, backward, intolerant. Those are harsh words, right, for us to hear, especially if you are here this morning as a Christian. Those are harsh words for us to hear. And though I don't agree with those words, I can actually understand why they are said, uh, right? To be honest, perhaps a question on your mind as you think about Christianity and as you think about the world outside of these walls, perhaps a question on your mind could be, could intelligent sophisticated, accomplished people ever come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is that even possible in the world that we live in today? Is the Christian faith, right, the Christian faith itself, is it appealing to all those people who have all the money, have all the power, who all have the high IQ? Is Christianity strong enough? Will people even want this thing? Is it possible for someone like that to believe the gospel? Perhaps for you, you have friends or colleagues or family members or neighbors that you have concluded in your mind, you've resolved in your heart, that they will never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ because they either have it all or because they are too smart for this. Uh, this, I don't think, is just a question on our minds. In fact, as I was reading the Bible this week, I, re I was remembering a story where a man actually came to Jesus uh, he was a rich young ruler, right? He had everything. He had power. He had money. He had the brains. He had influence. He had all the things that you needed. And yet it seemed like he was actually still interested in religion, in, in pursuing at least what Jesus was talking about. Uh, Jesus said of this kind of a man, do you know what he said? That it is impossible. It is impossible for him to know and follow God. After spending some time with this man, Jesus concluded it's impossible for this kind of a man to know and believe and follow God. Do you know how impossible Jesus said this is? He likened it to a camel going through the tiny eye of a needle. It's, it's easier for a camel to go through the tiny eye of a needle than for this kind of a man to believe in Jesus and enter the kingdom of God. 
Uh, what's the point that Jesus is trying to make? That it can't happen. This kind of a person can't know Jesus. It's impossible for a person who knows it all and has it all to believe in God. That is Jesus' point. But then, right after he says that, what does Jesus say? Here's what he says. With man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more beautiful is more powerful than anything else in the world that you can lay your eyes on or grasp with your hands. That is the gospel. It is more beautiful and better than anything you can ever imagine. It has the ability to remove any obstacle from a person believing and knowing in Jesus Christ because with God, all things are possible. And what our text is going to show us today is that this. This is what I want us to hear coming out of today. This is what... Acts 13 wants to show us that Jesus saves the impossible and defeats the formidable, right? This is what our text wants to show us today, that Jesus saves the impossible and defeats the formidable, all right? Today we're resuming our study in the book of Acts after our break over the summer. We're going to be in Acts 13, verses 1 to 12. We're going to spend most of our time from 4 to 12, verses 4 to 12, the passage that KDN read for us. It's on page 921 in the Bibles in front of you. If you're not there, please grab a Bible and go there. We're going to spend our time in this passage of Scripture. Right before verse 4, just to give you sort of an idea of where we're coming into, verses 1 to 3, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit calls and then sends Paul and Barnabas to start their first missionary journey. And that's where we pick up today. So if our big idea is that Jesus saves the impossible and defeats the formidable, how does this text show us some of that? So I've got three headings to guide us through this text of Scripture. Three truths, three headings that help us to walk through this text. The first of those three truths are that simply... Jesus saves intelligent people too, right? Jesus saves intelligent people too. Reading from verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, as God sends Paul and Barnabas out, they eventually end up at this island called Cyprus. Cyprus is actually the hometown of Barnabas. And Luke gives us these, it seems like, unnecessary details in how they've traveled from where they were in Antioch now to Cyprus. He, he sort of gives us every detail, and it's as if Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to know every hour and every mile and every day and every week that these two men traveled to go to synagogue after synagogue, to person after person, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus has come into the world to save us from our sins. That those who put their trust in him will have eternal life in him. That they spoke that message over and over and over again to these different places that they went. Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard of Jesus Christ from Nazareth? Eventually, 
they come to this city of Paphos. If you Google map on your phone right now, you can actually still see that very place. It's on your Google Maps. It's a small city in this, this island of Cyprus. Paphos was this city of commerce, and it's where the government was run from for Cyprus. It was a thriving city with finance, and it was, it was, it was booming. So Paphos is where they ended up landing on their first missionary journey. And as they traveled through this this island, as they continue to preach the gospel, they land upon two men. One man's name is Bar-Jesus. We'll come back to him in a moment. The other man's name is Sergius Paulus. All right? Who is this man, Sergius Paulus? He's not just any man from Cyprus. Sergius Paulus was actually the proconsul of Cyprus. It's sort of the governor of Cyprus. He was a big wig in that island. He was, his direct boss was the Roman emperor. This is an accomplished man with power and influence and money, but not only that, Luke goes out of the way to tell us that Sergius Paulus was a man of what? Intelligence. Sergius Paulus, sort of out of nowhere, Luke tells us he's also a man of intelligence. So here was this elite top-level man who has it all, and what does Sergius Paulus do? For some reason, this man of power and influence and prestige summons Paul and Barnabas to come to him. These nobodies, these people who have no influence or power or anything in the Roman world, Sergius Paulus wants them to come into his courts, and so he summons them. They're unknowns, but Sergius Paulus, what does he hear? He hears that they're actually speaking the word of God. And so he calls for them to hear the word of God. Okay, I think two questions could come into our minds when we think of religious, uh, of religion and accomplished, intellectual, smart, have-it-all kinds of people. I think two questions can come into our mind when we pit religion against intellectuals or accomplished people, right? First, we might ask, perhaps you've asked, isn't religion beneath them. Isn't religion beneath them? Because listen, in one sense, Jesus has come for the lowly. He's come for the poor. He's come for the disenfranchised, those on the fringes of society. He ate and hung out with people who were not considered impressive in society. In fact, his crew were made up of people that even religious people would say they're not impressive. That's who Jesus would hang out with. But we would go too far if we said that Jesus was only concerned with people on the fringes of society or those who didn't have a college education or some social status. We'd go too far if we said that. For one, don't forget that it's actually Dr. Luke that's penning the book of Acts here. And not only that. Paul, the other man that we hear in this passage, Paul, before he ever knew Jesus Christ, he was this brilliant mind. He had influence and power even before he ever followed Jesus. But even throughout church history are men and women who filled their hearts not just with passion and love and faith in God, but they were people, men and women, of intellect and prestige and power and influence Right? The, the church is not made up of just people who are just passionate about God, but it is filled actually throughout church history with people who are brilliant minds. Uh, in fact, even uh, one person in my own faith journey when I was struggling to believe in God, I think of this man named Francis Collins, perhaps you've heard of him. 
He's written a book called The Language of God that unpacks the scientific evidence for the existence of God. This man, Francis Collins, he was the president of the Human Genome Project. He was appointed by Barack Obama as the director of the National Institutes of Health. This was a man of high intelligence who believes in God. There are countless others like him, guys like Tim Keller over in New York or Ravi Zacharias, or you just keep going down the list. There are people who both love and are passionate about God and have deep faith in him who are also brilliant minds. I was talking to someone more recently about even how God perseveres us in faith, and I was talking to him about how encouraging it is to know that there are people like that, men and women like that on our side, uh, people who think deeply and wrestle profoundly, these heavy weights that believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That's not where our faith is placed. Don't hear me wrong. That's not where we bank our faith or trust in Jesus. He is our trust. He is our hope. But it's encouraging to your hearts. It's encouraging to me that there are brilliant men and women who have wrestled with faith, who have suffered immensely, who have asked the hard questions and have come out on the other side still believing. Christians are not just made up of a bunch of mindless people. There are brilliant people among us. Right? Isn't it great that Christianity is not just made up of people like me? Right? That, that there are brilliant people out there who actually believe this stuff. That's encouraging to us. The other question we might ask is, don't intelligent and accomplished people have it all already? Don't they already have everything that they need? The gospel seems less relevant to people who don't need anything, right? Right? If you already have everything, what else do you need? If you're content in your mind and content in your life, what else could the gospel possibly add to your life? What longing could you possibly have in your life? Well, even in the text that we're in today, I think Sergius Paulus himself is starting to feel some of that. This is a man who has everything, and yet you see that he is seeking God. Listen, there's a lot of pop literature and talk shows and worldviews that may, might make us think, right? If we just gaze our eyes on, on articles and talk shows and all of this, we might just come to the conclusion that no one will ever, ever believe in the gospel of Jesus. There's nothing we can do. What value does Jesus have into this kind of a world that we live in? That the gospel is unbelievable and dated and unfitting for an evolving world like ours. Uh, But as one Christian philosopher points out, that's not what people are really saying or doing or writing about or doing in art and in their daily life. They're actually not living out as if they have everything and are content in life. For example, one famous author named Julian Barnes, an agnostic, opens one of his books by writing this. He doesn't believe in God, opens one of his books by writing this. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Maybe something more pertinent to us if you're a Death Cab for Cutie fan, right? The the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, here are some of his lyrics in one of his songs, or two of his songs. I want so badly to believe that there's truth and that love is real. I am looking through the glass where the light bends at the cracks and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs pretending that the echoes belong to someone, to someone I used to know. 
him, an unbeliever, and someone who doesn't trust in Jesus as well. You can sense when you read and when you hear, when you view art in the world that we live in, there is a longing for something more. We might have everything. We might be at the top position. We might feel like we have influence and power and fame and prestige and intellect and all of that. But there is, if you don't have Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you need more than Jesus Christ. Because the reality is we will feel it. We do feel it. We write about it. We sing about it. We draw like we have nothing. For as much as we think people have it all, for as much as people think they might have it all, there is within us an inner longing for God that cannot be snuffed out. You can't medicate it. You can't buy it out. You can't excel in life and get rid of it. In fact, Romans tells us that we know our creator. We know him, and yet we do try to snuff him out. We do try to suppress him. So, as Sergius Paulus is seeking out to find God and know him, this story takes a sudden turn. What happens? Reading from verse 6 again. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Okay, uh, this man's name is Bar-Jesus, right? Meaning the son of Jesus. That name sounds kind of weird for us, but all it means is the son of Jesus. And Jesus was a very common name in that time. It's like saying Mike or Joe or John. It was a very common name. So this man's name is Bar-Jesus. And who is Bar-Jesus? He's also known as Elimus, meaning magician or wizard. But this isn't your average pull-a-bunny-out-of-a-hat kind of a magician. This man, Elimus, is actually a little bit more seedy than that. Elimus is more of a sorcerer than a magician, someone who claims to have knowledge with the underworld and with spirits. He's the kind of guy that would have a book on Amazon convincing you that he has the way to God, that he has the in with God. And that's why this man, Elimus, is in the presence of Sergius Paulus. He's there as what? Like a sage, like a counselor, like someone who can lead this man, Sergius, who's searching for God to God. Elimus wants to find, uh, Sergius Paulus wants to find God. Elimus says he has the answer. But as we read, continue to read in verse 8 and the following verses, Elimus is not this neutral person in the story. He's not just an innocent person in the story. Elimus is outright opposing Paul and Barnabas, and the gospel. Why? Why is he opposing it? Uh, well, just on the surface, if Sergius Paulus believes Paul and Barnabas, then Elimus is out of, the, out of a job, and he's on the unemployment line at Cyprus, right? He has no job anymore. He has no profession. But even deeper than that, whether or not Elimus knows it, whether or not Elimus is actually aware of it, he is doing much more than just playing politics. He's doing more than that because Elimus is trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith, from life, from salvation, from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, as we'll see in just a moment, Elimus is being used as a pawn by Satan himself. 
Okay, Elimus is being used as a pawn of Satan himself. And that's our second heading, our second truth, that we have a murderous enemy. We have a murderous, deceitful, vengeful enemy. Okay, when you hear words like devil or Satan or evil, right, depending on the ways that you've grown up or think about these kinds of things, we can tend to have two different reactions. Uh, Some of us recoil and are uncomfortable with these kinds of words because it just seems irrelevant and sort of hyper-spiritual, right? I I heard someone say this week, in the Western modern world, we don't think the devil is ever involved unless the person's head is completely turning around, it's turning green, and they're vomiting, right? Maybe at that point you think, yeah, maybe that's the devil, or maybe there's something going on there. We don't really have a category for this, for evil and Satan and for the devil. On the other hand, for some people, everything is the devil. The devil is in everything. If you grew up in some church context, you know what I mean. In fact, nothing is ever your fault or dealt with because it's the devil's fault, right? And so, uh, the tardy spirit made me late for work. Or the Big Mac spirit made me put on a few pounds. Or the Netflix spirit made me binge watch Netflix for the past 10 hours, right? Nothing's ever my fault because there's a spirit for everything. And so we hyper-spiritualize this whole thing. Some of us, right, can underestimate it. Some of us can overestimate the presence of evil and Satan and the devil. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it when he considers this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which we can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Uh, What's Lewis trying to say? He's trying to say if you overestimate it or underestimate it, you've done pretty much nothing to think about this rightly because the devil will come in and, and he'll come into your life and you won't even realize it because you don't know what to look for. In the Bible, though, there is no ignorance about who Satan is or what he is up to. In 1 Peter 5, 8, here's what it says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Hear that again. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, seeks around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Listen, it's easy to be in church and let that gloss over your head, or it's easy if you push back against these kinds of things to let that just fly. But would you know this morning, you need to hear, we need to hear today that there is a real enemy who wants us gone and out, who wants you gone and out. He wants to take you out. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour us, and he does it with craft and with false whispers into our minds that make us fall. He'll do it through people that will lead us astray or through circumstances that make us question his identity, his goodness, his work in the world and in our life. There is a real enemy that does not want you to make it. He does not want you to make it. Whether it be in your personal life and in your believing 
Or as Paul and Barnabas are engaging here in this scene, in your witness to someone else about Jesus, don't be ignorant, Seven Mile Road, don't be ignorant about the reality of Satan and evil in this broken world. This enemy is real. And how does Paul and Barnabas deal with this man named Elimus? Reading from verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, full of villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Do you sense the weightiness of this situation? Paul does not hear mince words. He doesn't just work his way up to it. Like a bull in a china shop, Paul just goes right for it. And he says, what? Son of the devil you are. An enemy of righteousness you are. You're full of deceit. You're full of villainy. You are making the straight paths of the Lord crooked. You son of the devil. There is no doubt that Paul sees this man as more than a neutral player in this exchange, in this account. He's not. Here's how one pastor put it. Leading someone to Christ is not merely an academic exercise, nor is it a matter of making a successful sales pitch. Rather, it involves all-out war against the forces of hell. Saul and Barnabas, this man says, battled Bar-Jesus for the soul of Sergius Paulus. Paul and Barnabas were battling this man, Satan with him guiding him, battling him for the soul of Sergius Paulus. Hear me. Satan does not want any of you to begin believing in Jesus, and he does not want any of you to stay believing in Jesus. What Satan would want from each one of you would want to, for you to never initiate a relationship with God, and if you're there right now, to walk away from him. You may not be there right now. You may have been there in the past. You may be there in the future. But can I tell you, Satan is seeking to devour each one of you. And that's not myth. That's not fiction. That's not fairy tale. God's word is telling us Satan is seeking you out. Satan, Satan seeks to devour you, and he will do anything and everything he can to keep Jesus away from you. As Paul and Barnabas are confronted with this instrument of Satan in the person of Elimus, what do they do now? Verse 11 leads us to our third and final point. God will not be overcome. God will not be overcome. Verse 11, and now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind. This is Paul telling Elimus, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Okay, Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, with a boldness from God and not arrogance or boast in himself, puts this false prophet and tool of Satan in his place. He puts him in his place. He is struck blind for a period of time. He must be led by the hand because he can no longer see. And not only that, what happens next? Verse 12 says this, Then the proconsul believed. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
Sergius Paulus actually comes to believing faith in Christ. This man of, of accomplishment and intelligence and of power and influence believes in Jesus Christ. The camel has passed through the tiny eye of the needle, and this man, who could not ever come to God, has come to God. The impossible has happened. God made this possible. Okay, consider what God has done in making this possible. Consider this. Paul said that Elimus tried to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. That's what Paul is saying Elimus did. What was that straight path he's talking about? John Piper helps to flesh some of this out. God saw Sergius Paulus in Cyprus, and he desired to save Sergius Paulus. All the while, some 300 miles away, as we read at the beginning of chapter 13, God is preparing this group of people as they worship and fast and are seeking God. Now, God makes the connection between Sergius Paulus, whom he wants to save, and this group of people praying and fasting and believing, waiting for God, and he makes the connection. And so God calls, sends, guides, and arranges for a meeting between Paul and Barnabas with this man, Sergius Paulus, so that he might come to faith. This is the straight path of God. But Elimus tries to divert it, tries to make it crooked. Satan enables him. He tries to push Elimus to come in the way of God's salvation through the proclamation of Paul and Barnabas. But God, look what God does. God actually overcomes the scheme of Satan and uses that very scheme to be the way that Sergius Paulus actually comes to faith. It says that Sergius Paulus looked what had occurred and he heard the teaching of the Lord and he believed. God actually turns the crooked paths of, the, uh, of Satan to actually be some of the means to which Sergius Paulus actually comes to believe in the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Seven Mile Road, you need to pay attention to what God is doing here. We need to hear that God will not be overcome. He will not be defeated. Listen, yes, it is true that there is an enemy that wages war against you. That is true. When you face suffering, this enemy desires for you to run away from God. Okay? When you face doubt, this enemy seeks to fill your mind with lies. When you face sin before you, this enemy wants to convince you that this sin is worth it all. Do whatever it takes to get it. When you find yourself alone, this enemy wants to convince you that God is nowhere to be found. When you find yourself in despair and in depression, this enemy want, will seek you to push you deeper and deeper into the pit of hopelessness. This enemy is not for you. And can I tell you, I've been there. In fact, if I can be honest, I'm sort of there right now. I can feel the whispers of the enemy trying to draw me away from God, to believe things that are not true of God. In the midst of your life, you will feel this. This is not, this is not just hypothetical, dear friends. In fact, Jesus himself, did he not feel this when the cross was before him, sweating blood? Where was the enemy convincing him, trying to get him to move away and not set his eyes on the cross? Listen, there is an enemy that seeks your soul and wants to draw you away from him. 
But hear God's word to you. Say, today, let this lift you up. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil and having done so, stand firm. Stand firm. Listen, if you're even just barely limping in this day, if you're stumbling along in this season of life right now, you need not ask yourself, am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I faithful enough? Am I good enough? You need only ask, is God able? And he is. He is better He is stronger. He is more wise. He is infinite. He is eternal. He will not be overcome. No matter what seeks to overcome you, he will not be overcome. And because you are in Christ, you will not be overcome. Why? Because it is the same God who defeated death and sin and hell and all of those things and raised Jesus Christ up from the dead. It is that same power that is at work within you and me. Okay, so listen, I know we go into places of, of doubt and real suffering that will, the, the enemy will seek to use all of those things to draw you out. But would you be assured this day that God holds you? God holds you. His grip on you will not be lost. God did not give you a new heart so that it could be ripped and torn to pieces by the devil. God will overcome every obstacle that comes in the way of those he is saving and believe that. So as we come out of this text from Acts 13, what should we be taking away? What should we be believing and doing coming out of Acts 13? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, I simply just want to say believe this. Believe this. Write it on the the doorpost of your heart. Believe these things. Live a life that pursues all kinds of people with the gospel. Even those you will never think come come to faith. Those people that you think are so far gone, who are too smart, who, who have everything, who would never be open to the gospel of Jesus. Pursue those people until your last breath. You don't know what God is up to. You don't know if you are part of the path God is charting to bring that person to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And don't be surprised by the attacks of the enemy along the way. He will not try to only destroy those you're trying to reach. He will try to destroy you in the process. Resist him. Stand firm in Jesus. Trust that God will not be overcome. If God is for you, who can stand against you? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, will he not also give us graciously all things and hold us till the very end? This morning... If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, consider just this simple thought, that this Paul, this person who was rebuking rebuking Elimus, was not only once a person who didn't trust in Jesus like Sergius Paulus didn't trust in Jesus, he was even worse than Elimus. The two characters in this story that don't know Jesus, Paul was worse than both of them. Because like Elimus, Just a few chapters ago, Paul was violently opposed to God's word and killed other Christians. Elimus opposed him, 
but Paul killed those who were proclaiming the gospel. He was also struck blind by God like Elimus. Paul was also, had, he had to be led by the hand because he had been blinded just like Elimus. Look at the parallels that happen. Paul, when he commands and does this rebuke over Elimus, is not standing over him as some arrogant person who knows it all, believes it all. He is doing so as a person who has received the very same grace that he hopes Elimus will someday receive. Paul is a recipient of God's grace. Rebel turned herald. This is Paul's story. And so would you hear this? Paul came to a saving knowledge of Jesus. He, though blinded, came to the knowledge of Christ, knowing that he is sweeter and better than anything else we could pursue. He trusted in the very Christ that he was persecuting. Paul spoke and rebuked Elimus, not out of arrogance, but because it's the very same message and the very same thing that has been done to his own heart. So this morning, would you hear this sermon, these words from God's word, not as judgment, but as an invitation to see through the darkness the bright light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here again this morning, Seven Mile Road, Jesus saves the impossible and Jesus defeats the formidable. Let's pray. Our God, we pray again in this moment that God's word who, that has been planted into our hearts and into our souls would not be ripped away by the enemy. We pray that we might believe gospel today by the grace and mercy and help of God. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate, continue to illuminate your word to us. Show us your power. Show us your saving power. Show us your ability to conquer the enemy, not just on that final day, but even today. Help us to trust in Jesus Christ for a life, for our salvation, for our faith. And in all of this, God, we pray that we might, as God's word promises, hold us to the end. This life is full of devils. This life is full of sin and brokenness and evil. Keep us, guard us, help us to stand firm in the, in the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.